Welcome to episode 181 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Phil Coughlin, who served in the FBI for 28 years. Phil was assigned to the Columbia Resident Agency out of the Cincinnati Division, the Washington Field Office, the Norfolk Division's Peninsula RA, and FBI HQ. During his career, Phil specialized in violent crimes, serial murder, and child abduction investigations, and he was a team leader on the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team. In this episode, Phil Coughlin reviews his investigation of a sophisticated and complex two-year crime spree involving bank robberies, bombs, and IEDs, and murder. And he discusses the highly controversial book, Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors that his bank robbery subjects read and used to commit their crimes. Phil also provides historical insight into the famously heated debate between Hustler Magazine publisher Larry Flint and Reverend Jerry Falwell regarding the limits of freedom of speech and how lawsuits about the First Amendment and the publication of the Hitman book connected Phil directly to the court case. A book and a feature film, both named Deliberate Intent, were made about the court case. During the second half of Phil Coughlin's bureau career, he worked terrorism investigations as part of a joint terrorism task force. After retiring from the FBI, he was fortunate to continue working for the bureau as an instructor in the Human Intelligence Operations Training Center, where he trains active agents on informant development. Phil also conducts investigations into allegations of workplace misconduct for private sector clients. Now, when I first heard about this case, I thought it was just going to be a a straight case about a bank robbery and, you know, something that enticed the bank robbers to do what they did. But this case review is very special because it also talks about what's going on in social media today and in hate speech. But I'll let Phil tell you about that. Before we get to the interview, I want to make sure that I invite you to join my reader team, where once a month, I send out a email digest to keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV and movies. I usually review a TV show or movie or book about the FBI and let you know what they got right or what they got wrong about FBI procedures. I also recommend new crime dramas, TV shows, books, movies, and even podcasts, and keep you up to date on my author journey. If you're not a member of my reader team, then you can always sign up at my website, jerrywilliams.com, Or if you're listening to this on a podcast app, just look for the link in the description of this episode. If you've already picked up your copy of FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, thank you. And special thanks for those of you who have posted a review on Amazon. Wow, five stars. 
I want this book to become the book to read if you're interested in learning more about the FBI. FBI Myths and Misconceptions is available wherever books are sold, as well as the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series. Thank you for the support. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, Phil Coughlin. Hi, Phil. How are you? Hey, Jerry. I'm doing well. Well, before we start any further, I have got to say hello to Judy Tyler. Uh, Our mutual friend. Judy's absolutely wonderful. It would probably cost me hundreds of dollars to pay her a finder's fee because she has sent me so many great agents to participate on this podcast. And not only Judy, people will be surprised to hear Judy's brother, who is not even in the FBI, Mike Georgeberg, has also sent me lots and lots of potential cases and suggestions. So between the two of them, I don't have as much work as I um, would have to be able to do this on a weekly basis. So thank you, Judy. Yeah, thank you, Judy. Judy's wonderful and she made some great cases and she definitely knows a lot of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky to have her as a, as a friend. All right, so this particular case, I mean, when she told me about it, I was like, yes, yes, please, please. That's <laughs> Bill to, to do the show because, I mean, it just has so many aspects to it. I mean, it's a great true crime case. But it also has, I don't want to use the word spiritual, but it has a message. It has a true message, and it's a message about good and evil. But yes, I'm going yeah, I'm, I'm to let you introduce it because you have a strange connection to the book that, and I don't even know if you want to start with the book, so I'm not going to mention it, but you have this strange connection through your work as an FBI agent with this very evil book. Where do you want to start? <laughs> it's kind of a, it's a four-stage presentation, and I just kind of put it together, and it kind of, kind of followed up my career a little bit, and uh, a couple of cases I've worked, how it in around with the First Amendment, uh, the right of free speech, how far free speech extends into both our words and into written publication. So th- the first part kind of starts back in uh, the early 80s, back in about 1985, There was a lawsuit between the publisher of a pornography magazine called Hustler, Larry Flint, and a televangelist called Jerry Falwell. And Jerry Falwell had started Liberty University, and he also championed a group called the Moral Majority, which was a political group. And in the Moral Majority, one of the things he was championing was to try to evaluate obscenity and child pornography and to uh, create legislation to stop them from being out in the public sector as much as they were. Well, when Jerry Falwell kind of went on this campaign, Larry Flint took it personally because he took it as a personal attack against his magazine. So Larry Flint decided to express his First Amendment right, and he had some really inflammatory things to say about Jerry Falwell. And in his magazine, he actually accused Jerry Falwell of having his first sexual encounter with his mother in the family outhouse while they're both drunk off their, quote, God-fearing asses. And he wrote this in his magazine. It was sent internationally to you know, millions of people. And then in a subsequent magazine, he kind of pushed it even further. And he said that Falwell was so intoxicated that his mom looked better than a Baptist whore with a $100 donation. Oh, so, don't talk about people's mothers. I know it. I know it. So 
Larry Flint really kind of pushed the envelope and he knew what he was doing. He, and he did it uh, with intent. So uh, Jerry Falwell sued him for defamation of character. And the case went through the lower court and the appellate court, in which Jerry Falwell won both of those decisions. But Larry Flint went out and hired an attorney, a guy, an attorney named Ron Smala. And Ron was a First Amendment attorney. And he took the case in front of the Supreme Court. And he argued that since Jerry Falwell was a televangelist, that he had a public persona. And therefore, it, couldn't, it wasn't just defamation of character against an individual that Larry Flint's right to speak out against him was to speak out against somebody who was a public character, much like a politician or an actor. And surprisingly, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously. They only had eight justices at the time, so it was eight to zero vote. And it was written by Judge Runquist, who was uh, very conservative. And they actually sided with Larry Flint, that Larry Flint was correct, and that Jerry Falwell was a public figure, and people could say what they want, wanted to about him. But in the end, they actually both kind of won a little bit and lost a little bit. Larry Flint wrote that it cost him $3 million to get that decision, and it was worth every penny. Jerry Falwell lost the battle, but he won the war because President Reagan signed off on legislation that did curtail what a senator was and what child pornography was. So I guess they both won a little bit and lost a little bit. So then a couple of years goes by, and I go through uh, the FBI Academy, and I come out, and I graduate in uh, 1988, and I get sent to Columbus, Ohio. And shortly after I got to Columbus, Ohio, I got assigned a really complex bank robbery case that involved uh, bombings and ultimately murder. And it was kind of like a it was kind of like the movie Point Break on steroids with Patrick Swayze or Keanu Reeves. In the movie, they wore presidential masks and robbed banks about once a year when they weren't surfing. And that's how these two guys were. They would rob about one bank a year. They went out and would steal cars. They'd take the cars back to their makeshift paint shop, and they would paint the cars, switch license plates, put on stolen tags. And then they would make bombs or IEDs. And what they'd use the bombs for would be like a police diversion. They'd go out into a very small rural county where they'd rob a bank. And instead of putting a bomb like on the side of a road, they actually planted these bombs at a natural gas company. And the bombs had timers on them so that if they went off, not only would a bomb blow up, but it would blow up the whole entire natural gas company. Likely could have killed hundreds of people. When they planted the bombs, they called the police department and they told them about there was um, the bomb threat so that all the first response would go towards the gas company. And then they went to the other side of the county and they used their uh, stolen vehicles and they had police scanners and sawed off shotguns and masks and gloves. And they went into the bank and they kind of took the whole bank over and got into the vault. Real elaborate. And when they left, they'd leave in a stolen car and then they'd drop that car, abandon it, and then get into another stolen vehicle for their getaway. And they really didn't leave any physical evidence behind. There was uh, no fingerprints, no DNA, no hairs and fiber. They were very, very good. And this lasted for about three years. They robbed about one bank a year for three consecutive years. Can you tell us how much they would get from each bank robbery? <laughs> as elaborate as it was, they really didn't get much money. I don't think they got more than $10,000 from any one bank. Oh, so I'm thinking that they robbed enough each time that paid their way for a full year. And I would have thought so too, by as elaborate as they were. But they definitely got more into 
the fascination of the robbery. And they actually were good at stealing money. All right. So they obviously kept their day job. (laughs) That's right. They kept their day job. I think they were probably doing some other thieving and stealing around town. But um, yes, they kept their day jobs. And it's kind of explained later that their expertise was in how they pulled off the robberies versus the robberies themselves. So the case went on and I was investigating it. And with a little bit of tenacity and a whole lot of luck, I got a, I got a break in the case. And the break came because I was following the police reports. And I noticed that one weekend that these two individuals who were in their 20s got arrested in Columbus, Ohio on a traffic stop. And in the trunk of their car, they had guns that weren't registered. So they were just charged with uh, simple gun offenses. It was actually a misdemeanor, but they were, they were arrested and put in jail. But it just seemed odd to me that a couple of guys that were from about two hours away from uh, Logan, Ohio, were actually in the city of Columbus and just driving around town. It didn't make sense to me. And they fit the, the, the general descriptions of my subjects that I was looking for. So it was, you know, it's a pretty significant case. So I kind of dove into it and I, you know, did record checks. And these guys really didn't have a criminal record to speak of, a couple of minor things, but nothing of substance. So I went out and actually interviewed uh, their family and their, some of their friends. And I interviewed one of the, one of the subjects, uh, his girlfriend, his actual fiance. And she was, she was really good people. She was straight up. And she was very forthright. And she basically said she didn't know if they were the ones who did it or not. But she couldn't say that they weren't. That She said that they had the mindset that they could have done it, which kind of surprised me. And then she went on to say that not her fiancé, but the, the other co-defendant in the case, she described him as kind of being the leader, that her boyfriend was kind of subservient to his leadership. And that he was kind of a psychopath. You know, she talked about how they'd go out in the woods and kill animals, small animals, and torture them and stuff. Kind of very characteristic of what a psychopath in the making would do. So that information really helped because then I kind of knew who was in charge, which one of the two was the leaders. So I was able to kind of put some pressure on the fiance on how important it was that her, you know, boyfriend, if he was in fact not the leader and was concerned about his safety, to come forward. So the next day, I actually, before her boyfriend got out of jail, I was actually able to reach out to him. And he said he wanted to have attorney present. So we got his attorney, got him attorney, had his attorney present. And I was able to go out and talk to him and kind of just do the, you know, the typical law enforcement pressure. We kind of put pressure on him and back it off and put pressure on him and back it off. And uh, ultimately, he came clean and he said that, uh, he said, yes, that him and the other, his co-defendant, were the ones that actually were robbing the banks and that he was afraid of his life. He was afraid that if his co-defendant gets out of jail, that he'll kill him. And he was seriously afraid for his life. Can I interrupt just for a second? Because sure. I understand what you mean by putting pressure and then backing off. But I just want to make sure that someone else listening isn't thinking like, you know, you're putting his arm behind his back or something like that. So what do you mean when you say you put pressure on him? It was all through dialogue. I'd talk about the bank robberies, his possible involvement. And you can just see that he had the weight of the world on him, but he wasn't ready to talk yet. So then I'd verbally kind of back off and kind of small talk, maybe talk about sports or talk about something completely different. And then I'd come back around to the crime spree again. 
and you know tell him how important it was that he come clean with it. And it went on for you know a few hours. Uh, his attorney was there the whole time, and ultimately he was you know he wanted to talk. He just needed time to think it through, and I just needed to let that process happen. How sure were you at this point that he was involved in the bank robberies that you were investigating? It sounds like you were pretty sure at that point. I was. I could tell by his demeanor. Actually, when I left his girlfriend's house, I felt pretty confident because just by things that she said and how she described the other co-defendant and kind of the psychopathic tendencies he had, it was just unusual that we weren't in a big city or way out in the country. I don't even know if these two individuals graduated from high school. That's as much education as that they had. I think when I left her, I pretty much knew, felt very comfortable with that, pretty confident that these were the two individuals involved with this crime spray. So once they were identified, I got a call from the local sheriff later that day, the local sheriff down two hours away in Logan, Ohio. He kind of said, hey, Phil, he goes, um, one of their associates has been missing for about a month, and he wanted me to inquire about his whereabouts. And if the individual I was talking to, the, the subject that was cooperating, knew where this third party was. So I went back and they, now that he had provided all the information about the bank robberies and all the evidence and all that, I went back to him and, and told him we need to talk some more about another possible crime. And again, we had his attorney present and his attorney stressed how important it was that he's already confessed to these bank robberies and that if he lies about another crime, all his statements could be used against him in trial on the bank robberies. In other words, he wouldn't get credit for providing the statements he provided. So again, you know, I kind of had a you know seesaw back and forth of putting pressure on and taking it off and talking him through. And you could just tell you had so much anguish and so much stress on him. And um, after another couple few hours, he didn't come forward. And he said, yeah, my partner and I, we, uh, we killed him. We actually shot him. And it was over a very nothing of substance. I think uh, the third party had sold him some marijuana and it had some seeds in it. And the co-defendant was, who I identify as a psychopath just pretty much killed him for no reason at all. But then he went into how, how he was killed. And it was just like the bank robberies. It was extremely elaborate on, on the weapon they used. It was a gun, but the type of weapon they used and how they manipulated the weapon how they shot him, how they killed him, how they dismembered the body, what they did to the body, and how they disposed of the body. It was extremely elaborate. And, and actually, he actually took us out there to where the body was buried. And ultimately, we were able to find a body and find a person. So here you have a slew of bank robberies and a homicide where we had no physical evidence whatsoever. In the homicide case, we didn't know the person was dead. We didn't have a murder weapon. We had no evidence. And we were able to solve a homicide case just merely on um, interviewing the subject in the case, which was pretty gratifying. But the obvious question is, you know, I'm, I'm asking the individual, how do you know how to do this type of crime spree? You know, how do you know how to do this very elaborate, you know, stolen cars and painting the cars and switch plates and making a bomb and planting a bomb and, and diversionary tactics and sawed-off shotguns and police scanners and then it's homicide, which is even more elaborate. And I don't want to get into all the details and put them out there, what they actually did to this individual, but it really, really, really heinous. Sounds like a, almost a paramilitary operation. I guess that's a good way to describe it. His response was, he goes, Phil, he goes, we just got books on the subject. 
I was like, you got a book on how to kill? And he goes, yeah, we got a book. And I was like, what's the name of it? He goes, it's called Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. And I, and I said, there's a book that, that is a how-to recipe on how to kill? And he goes, yeah, it's a step-by-step book. and tells you everything you need to know. And so I was, I was fabricated that these individuals who weren't highly educated actually sought out books on how to commit all these crimes and that there's actually a book out there on how to kill that provides a recipe on how to kill. So I got a search warrant and went over, searched a co-defendant or the psychopath's house and was able to retrieve the book Hitman as well as several other books that they use in their crime spree. And I was able to collect three spent bullet rounds that they kept as souvenirs of the homicide that they actually dug out of the body and kept them as a, as a souvenir, which some murderers or some uh, serial killers would do to remember the crime by. And so ultimately, um, he did agree to testify against his co-conspirator and his co-conspirator got 33 years for the bank robbery and he got life sentence for the homicide. And the individual who cooperated with me got about eight years on the bank robberies. And because we didn't know anything about the homicide and had no evidence, he had full immunity on that one. So he was not convicted of that crime. You know, one of the things that I I like to remind people is the FBI and their violation of murder. And, And the fact that so many times you read in books and see on TV, you know, the FBI investigating a murder. So I would love for you to explain how these two cases, the bank robbery and the homicide, were prosecuted. Uh, it's a real good point, Jerry. The bank robbery, we actually can be prosecuted at the state level or the federal level. We actually prosecuted at the federal level. And he went to trial. It was, uh, it was a multiple-day trial. It was pretty intense. Somebody from the FBI explosive lab came out and testified on the IED that they planted and we found similar bomb-making material at the house during the search warrant. Pretty involved trial. The homicide case, once he confessed the homicide, actually at the time of confession, I had a local detective who was present, and he took the statement on the homicide, and when we went out to recover the body, the local law enforcement took the lead in it, and they actually uh, exhumed the body and collected all the evidence in order to make a strong homicide case at the state level. So he was prosecuted at the state level for the homicide, and that was a multi-day trial also. The subject, he appealed both decisions, and it took a few years, but both of them were denied. So he got the full weight of the law and the sentence upon him in two different, two different court systems. Now, the person that was cooperating, your cooperating witness, he only got eight years. Did he show any remorse? He really did. And he really, on the homicide case, I really, they didn't plan it out. It was kind of spontaneous. So he was like present for the homicide. He obviously helped dispose of the body in the way in which they went about doing that. That was all from the book, how they disposed of it. They they learned how to do that from the book. That's correct. The book had a step-by-step. It actually gives 26 steps on how to go about killing somebody. And they followed it verbatim on how, to, how they killed this individual and how they disposed of the body and what they did to the body was all in there. Really evil at this, um, you know, how to commit a murder and get away with it without getting caught. Really, really, really heinous. 
and actually the book kind of haunted me. I mean, uh, I felt like I investigated the crimes as far as I could possibly investigate them and the subjects went to jail. But just knowing this book was out there, it, just, it was just haunting. It was unnerving to me that such a book could exist. About that time, I got, I got transferred in 1992 from uh, Columbus, Ohio to the Washington Field Office. And shortly after I got to the Washington Field Office, going into the next case here, in 1993, there was a really, really heinous triple homicide in Montgomery County, Maryland, where an individual uh, broke into a suburban home and he executed the mother at the house. And then he went and executed her 12-year-old son who was quadriplegic. He couldn't use his arms or his legs. And then he executed a living nanny and then left the scene. So it was this unexpected three people in the middle of the night who were sound asleep and get executed for seemingly no reason whatsoever. Our Baltimore field office, because Montgomery County is in Maryland, which is covered by a different field office, a Baltimore field office, they just did an exceptional job with the Montgomery County Police Department investigating that triple homicide. And they utilized Title III wiretap and were able to solve the case. And they were able to charge the ex-husband, uh, Larry Horn, with hiring a hitman, James Perry, out of Detroit. And Perry traveled from Detroit, Michigan, to Silver Spring, Maryland, to carry out the, the hit. I'm going to ask you to stop again and explain the FBI's participation. Again, we have a local homicide and we have a murder for hire, but usually those are also state crimes. So what's the FBI doing being involved in something like this? A good question. This case had an interstate aspect. It went from uh, Maryland to Michigan. So the FBI has investigated jurisdiction when it does go interstate like this one did. Ultimately, both Larry Horan and James Perry were prosecuted in Maryland by the Montgomery County Police Department. So the FBI was involved in the UFAP warrant? Is that what you're saying? We're actually involved. In, it was a murder for hire. And when there's a murder for hire that goes interstate, we do have jurisdiction. And okay. it was a federal charge. Okay. So we worked at that level. And, and that gave us a right in order to get a Title III wiretap federally. But the case had such a major impact on the local community. It was prosecuted by the Montgomery County Police Department. And ultimately, Perry got sentenced to the death penalty. And that has been carried out. And Larry Horn, the ex-husband, got three life sentences for his role in it. But in doing the investigation, it was determined that Perry had uh, utilized the book Hitman and that he followed 22 of the 26 steps that the book outlines. All right. So you got to stop now and just let us know. When you discovered that you are, here's another case that, you know, has an FBI connection, you know, that, that you're aware of that has also used this Hitman book. I mean, what are you thinking in your mind? I think the best word to describe it was this haunting. It was this haunting that a publication could exist that could be a how-to guide and that it was being utilized. And what really concerned me is that in the preface of the book, the author I mean, in the first two sentences, he writes that he's often asked if his book, if it would bother him that if somebody read his book and actually carried out homicides. And he basically says, no, it would not bother him at all. 
And basically, a friend of mine said he's choosing Benjamin's over tears, that he just cared about making the money of the book versus having any remorse whatsoever of somebody carrying out a homicide. Well, who is this guy? The author? Yeah. I mean, where, how did he learn how to do this? It's a big mystery. The, on the book that says the author is Rex Farrell, F-E-R-A-L. But in the research that I've done, they actually believe the author is a female out of Florida, but she's still unknown who, on who it is or how she learned how to do it all. Yeah, that's, it's yeah, pretty shocking. amazing. It is shocking. Before you go on to talk a little bit more about this book, which is absolutely fascinating, obviously, even if he covered these 22 out of 26 steps, something went wrong because they were able to put together the fact that the ex-husband was involved and had hired a hitman. So before you moved into the book, could you tell us a little bit about how they, how the FBI and the Montgomery County police department were able to figure out who was behind these murders, this, this triple murder. Sure. They had a wiretap up on, on uh, the father's Larry Horn's telephone. And through that, they're able to determine a connection to Perry who would have no other reason to talk or communicate with each other, which was one of the steps that he wasn't supposed to talk about his crime on the phone, um, which is one of the 26 steps. Another thing that Perry did that it helped convict him is he utilized his true name at a hotel in Maryland. So it kind of took away his alibi, kind of puts him at the scene of the crime or at least in the general area in the vicinity of Silver Spring, Maryland, when the crime took place. So he made a couple of fatal flaws that ultimately undermined him, that he didn't follow all 26 steps in the book, and it ultimately led to both of them being charged and convicted. So the family, the Horn family, the victim family, had three sisters, the Rice sisters, and they actually went out and said, hey, a book like this, you know, the publisher should be liable for putting out a book that was used by a hitman to kill their family members. So they went out and hired an attorney, and of all attorneys, they hired Ron Smala, the same attorney that Larry Flint had hired about 10 years earlier to extend the veil of the First Amendment, they hired him to actually limit the veil of the First Amendment and sued the publishing company, which is Palatine Press, out of uh, Boulder, Colorado. And they sued him for aiding and abetting in a homicide by publishing a book that is a how-to guide on how to kill. And this is the first time a publisher has been sued for the actions that a reader has taken to commit a crime. And the case had national ramifications, and a lot of publishing companies around the country came out against it, including the Washington Post. And they felt like Palatine had total right in the publishing of the book, and that with freedom of press, it should be totally free. But the attorney did a good job. Ron Smollett said no, and they took it to the federal court, and the, first, uh, the lower court sided with the First Amendment, the veil of protection. So they appealed it to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel, and they reviewed it, and they looked at that preface that I made reference to earlier, saying that this is nothing more than a how-to guide, and this is akin to yelling fire in a crowded movie theater where it causes a stampede and people to die. 
that this book is so heinous and has no artistic value whatsoever is akin to just a chocolate chip cookie recipe where the recipe is how to commit a murder. And so they said that Palatine could be sued and be held culpable for publishing this book. And they sent it back down to the lower court to see if they were the extent of their financial culpability. Once I realized the case had been sent back down to court for adjudication, I realized that Ron Smalley had no idea that, that there was another case out there that, that his subject wasn't just, we call it a one-off or a one-time person or somebody that was on a spectrum that probably would have you know, committed homicide with or without this book. So I went ahead and decided to call Mr. Smalley and kind of tell him that, hey, this wasn't the first time this book's been utilized in a homicide. And I told him about the case in Ohio and that, you know, this book is being utilized by multiple other people to commit homicide. Well, now it's an systemic problem. It's not, a, it's not a one-time incident. It's now systemic. And once he brought that to the attention of Palatine Press, they immediately agreed to settle the case. And they agreed to pay multi-millions of dollars to the Rice family. And as important, if not more important, for the first time ever, they agreed to take the book out of publication to not be distributed anymore. Marking this is the first time that any book, any publication has ever been pulled from release because it wasn't protected by First Amendment. Wow. That, <laughs> I can only imagine what accomplishment you felt when you heard that, that happen. Yeah, it was, it was pretty major. Because there's no telling how many other homicides that have not taken place because this book is no longer available. I mean, in a short amount of time, I was aware of four different homicides. And there's no telling how many more times this book could have been used. So just to know the book was pulled and being the only book at that up to this time to be pulled uh, out of circulation, it, it really did feel really good. Yeah, because, I mean, you're right. You just made a point that I didn't even think about. You know, may have been people who followed all 26 points and they followed them correctly. And we will never know. That's right. About what acts of violence that they committed because the book showed them how to get away with murder and they were successful. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. Well, I have a question for you because before we started, you showed me that you had borrowed a copy of somebody else's book. You didn't want your own copy of it, but that there is a physical print copy of the book Hitman. So where'd that come from? I just borrowed it from a friend of mine. I don't want to get into too many details on how he was able to get a copy of it, but I wanted a book for the podcast so I could review it because I hadn't seen the book in almost 20 years. And it, the books, is, it's just evil. And to tell you the truth, I'm looking forward to giving it back to my friend and getting it out of my house because it's, it's, just, it's just pure evil. And actually, the case is being talked about in uh, law schools around the country because it involves the First Amendment. And Smalley actually wrote, went ahead and wrote a book he called, called Deliberate Intent, where he talks about this case and getting the book pulled out of the publication. And he talks about our conversation and our phone call and how, as it relates to the case in Ohio. And in 2001... The book was actually made into a motion picture with the same name, Delivered Intent, and it stars Timothy Hutton. So it's kind of kind of unusual. You talk about the book being pulled out of circulation. I tried to find the film because I wanted to watch it, and the movie, Deliberate Intent, was with Timothy Hutton, 
you know, I really enjoy his work. I couldn't find it. It's not stream. I mean, I could find it if I wanted to buy it, but I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. So I was really disappointed about that. Uh, yes, and it is surprising, but it's almost it's almost 20 years now since it was released. So I think a lot of the streaming video websites and that type of thing, I think they circulate through even more popular titles. But you're right, it is available to purchase. It is out there, which is kind of interesting. The movie, the mo- not the book. That is correct. <laughs> the movie, Delivered Intent, is out there. I would hope, after what you've said about the book, that there's nobody listening would really want to go out and get it. But, you know, who knows? That's my fear. That's why I don't want to get into too much detail on how it was lo- the book was located. I was thinking about it, if somebody did go out there and get it, that whoever sells it to them faces the same culpability as Palatine Press faced if the book is utilized in a homicide that it's very clear that whoever uses this book, the person who sold it to them, can be held liable for aiding and betting. So I want to put that warning out there as well. Of interest is now the protection of the First Amendment does not extend as far as it used to. So it kind of means that if somebody writes something and it's so inflammatory that somebody else takes action on it, the original author could be held liable for aiding and embedding, just as Palatine was held in this case. And it kind of makes me think about politics today and just how heated things are getting. And everybody thinks that the First Amendment is universally protect them. And there is a legal precedence that that's not the case. It's kind of interesting now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you talk about, you know, the hate that we see every single day on the internet, on social media, you know, what people are saying and accusations, whether false or fake or are true. It is just so acrimonious now that, you know, sometimes I just get disgusted and, and the hate that's being spread about. And I agree. And I think we all, we're all getting that way. We all kind of think where the bottom is. And I'm glad at least there is legal precedence out there that there is, there can be culpability. And I hope that gets more known out there because I think people are kind of inciting people to violence and it's concerning. You know, it's on both sides of the fence. It's not on one side or the other and things are getting pretty tense out there and just really encourage tolerance. I do kind of have an addendum to my story that kind of talks about that. In 2016, my daughter was a freshman at Liberty University, and she was in the band. And the now dean of Liberty University is Jerry Falwell Jr., the son of Jerry Falwell. And he addressed the band parents and talked to the incoming freshman parents. And he kind of goes, hey, I have a story to tell you all about love. And he goes, in 2000, the year 2000, he said his dad approached uh, Larry Flint and with the proposition of having them tour around the country, go to various colleges and debate about free speech and morality and the limits of the each one. And he said his dad and Larry Flint did this for several years. And he said on one occasion, he said he went with his father down to Florida and heard this really heated debate between the two. It was point and counterpoint and all the college students got involved in it. But he said that those two men respected each other. I mean, they respected each other's differences and their point and counterpoint. And they just had a really good debate, but it was all very respectful. And he said afterwards, he goes, my dad 
and Larry Flint, we went out to dinner together and we had a great conversation. We talked about each other's families. And the next day, Larry Flint actually used his corporate jet to fly him and his father back to Lynchburg, Virginia. And he said the two men were really good friends. And he said his dad always lived by, you know, love the man, hate the sin. And his dad put away the political differences and the past inflammatory speech, I guess Larry Flynn had said about his mom, about uh, Jerry Falwell's mother, and just looked at the individual and just loved the individual for who Larry Flint was. And I thought about, as I was preparing for the podcast, I was kind of thinking about what did Larry Flint actually think of the relationship with Jerry Falwell? And I found a letter to the editor that Larry Flint sent into the Los Angeles Times following the death of Jerry Falwell in 2007. And he wrote, he goes, the ultimate result was one that I never expected. We became friends. And so even, even Larry Flint says that him and Jerry Falwell, who had, were totally politically opposite, had different faiths, but they actually liked each other and they respected each other. And it just shows me how, how important tolerance is, that we can debate with somebody who doesn't believe what we believe or think what we think, but we need to respect each other and just have a lot more tolerance towards each other. So after almost 30 years, actually, the whole thing came full circle. That's kind of, I use the word spiritual because I really see the message in that. And I can kind of even relate it to the podcast and the FBI because one of my motivations, not the, not the initial motivation to do this podcast, but the motivation to continue and to really seek interesting cases was all the hate and the nastiness and the questioning about the FBI that was out there. I had decided instead of getting on social media and hitting people right mm -hmm. back that mm -hmm. I would just put the cases up and let the cases speak for themselves. And so I think this is like the perfect case to to present today. I'm I'm really excited and I'm so glad that you agreed to come on and, and talk about it. Thank you so much. Uh, Jerry, that's really nice of you and I, and I appreciate that too. Yeah, I agree. We need to be a whole lot more tolerant with each other and it's very easy to get behind that computer and get on social media and send out little bombs and you know express ourselves in ways that we probably shouldn't. And I kind of liked, you know, it's both sides of it. I kind of like Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint's um, relationship. And whatever side you, you know, you kind of lean towards, they respected each other. And I think that demonstrates a lot of leadership to us today. Yeah, that's true leadership. Well, actually, I was going to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. But of course, in the telling of this case review, we've learned really a lot about you, you know, <laughs> in that sense. But I'll, I'll still ask you for the details. And the question that I always ask my guest is, if you could tell us when you joined the FBI and why you joined the FBI. I joined in 1988. I was like 24 years old. So I came in pretty young. I, I think you did too, Jerry, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was 25. Okay. Yeah. Which, as you and I know, the average age is around 30, 31. It's kind of a second career for most people. So you and I are kind of the oddity of coming in at such a young age. Right. My, my dad was an FBI agent, and his older brother was an FBI agent. Ah, family business. Yeah, family business. My dad always said he always enjoyed going to work. And I didn't know too many people in my life who said that they always enjoyed their work. And I think you and I probably both agree that we always enjoyed our career with the FBI. It was just Absolutely. A, it was a rewarding career, and it was a way to kind of give back. And 
make our own little difference and make the world a little bit better place. So what'd you do before you came in? I pretty much came in out of college. They had a program. They wanted people with an engineering degree. Kind of like today, they have computer science. You can come in earlier also today. Yeah, they weigh the the work experience in order to capture those highly competitive degrees and experiences. That's right. Typically, you need three years' work experience, but they were able to waive that. Yes. That's a good point that you're bringing up about cyber and and computer science people. I, I think they're doing some of that right now. As a matter of fact, I think I heard that they're actually having some of those people work for the FBI while they're in undergraduate and graduate school. Oh, wow. Again, trying to get a hold of them before they're taken away by the old mighty dollars, uh, bigger salaries of corporations. Yes, it is hard to compete against the salaries. I think think the majority of people that come in the FBI, you kind of do it for a bigger purpose than just money. You want to make a difference and... I think that's why the FBI attracts so many great people. So did you always know that you wanted to be an FBI agent? And my other question is, did you major in engineering just so that (laughs) people were competitive to get into the FBI? I wish I could say I had a great plan, but I really didn't. I just uh, enjoyed math and science and kind of went into engineering and things just kind of worked out for me. So I feel very blessed. But I think they actually changed that requirement while I was in my undergraduate studies of not needing the work experience because I actually saw the FBI, I approached the FBI at a career fair at University of Maryland. And I was surprised to hear that you didn't need the three years work experience that you can come in right out of college. So right. I appreciate that opportunity to tell you the truth. But it was something growing up with your father being an FBI agent that you had always considered as a possibility for employment. Yes. And I, I, did have family days and uh, our family would go into the FBI office or FBI picnics. And these FBI agencies look larger than life to me. They just had such incredible personalities and they just look like heroes. And I always looked up, like many of us, looked up to my father and, and his friends. And my dad, back, back then, they didn't talk a lot about their cases and their work, but they were just larger in life to me. So it always was a desire. I just didn't know if that's what I was going to do or not when I was younger. Because this is FBI retired, case file review, everybody knows that you retired from the FBI. What are you doing now? I was fortunate enough, the FBI hired me back as an independent contractor. And I'm an instructor at the Human Operation Training Unit, where I train current FBI agents on how to operate and manage their sources. Excellent. And that's how you know Judy, because that's what she's doing now, too. That's right. Well, I'm so glad that Judy introduced us. I'm so glad that you talked about this case because it's a little different. I always talk about how in in writing my crime novels, I talk about Joseph Wambaugh and one of his favorite sayings, which is that a good crime novel is not how cops work on cases, but how cases work on cops. And this is an example, a real life, true crime example of how working this case, how that affected you to the point where, you know, your daughter ends up going to the college, as you said, came full circle. It did. It did. It's funny how that is in law enforcement. I think a lot of us have cases that kind of, you know, go on for years and years and kind of haunt us and as this one did. But in my case, it was the book that kind of haunted me. Just knowing that it was taken out of publication was huge. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. So we're at the point of the interview where I like to give my guest the last word. So what would you like to say? 
I think my last word would be tolerance. Just encourage. I think I want when I came on and agreed to do the podcast. I didn't want to just talk about a case. I kind of wanted to, I guess, leave people with a thought and just encourage everybody just to have more tolerance to people of different sexualities or race or political affiliation or religion, and just to be more like Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint. Just love each other, respect each other. You know, love the man, hate the sin type thing, and. And that's what I've tried to do in my life as well. So I think my my last word would just be tolerance. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Phil Coughlin. You'll find a number of articles and videos about the court case, the bank robbery, the debate between Larry Flint and Reverend Jerry Falwell. And there are links to the trailer for the movie and a link to where you can purchase the book if you're interested. Let me clarify that. The book written by the attorney, Deliberate Intent, not that evil book. I hope you don't want to purchase that. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, as well as other podcast apps and YouTube. This podcast is where I talk about FBI true crime. But if you're interested in crime fiction, then you want to join my reader team where once a month I send out an email where I review FBI crime dramas, books, TV, and movies and tell you what they get right and what they get wrong. When you join my reader team, I'll send you a colorful list of more than 50 books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have appeared on this podcast. Nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You can join my reader team at jerrywilliams.com Or if you're listening to this episode on a podcast app, there's a link in the description of this episode. Make sure to pick up your copy of FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, and the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. All of my books are available wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.